Hace un año, cuando los últimos soldados racistas abandonaron el territorio de Angola y pudo proclamarse desde Cabinda hasta Cunene un solo país, un solo pueblo. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet. And I'm Ned Sublet. With you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Today, the fourth and final episode of Hip Deep Angola, the Cuban intervention in Angola. De Cabinda hasta Cunene, un solo pueblo, un solo pueblo, un solo pueblo. The little-known story of Cuba's massive military participation in southern Africa in the 1970s and 80s, which had enormous consequences for the entire region, as told through music. My longtime Afropop Worldwide colleague, Ned Sublet, is co-author of the book The American Slave Coast. Ned traveled to Angola to produce this special four-part series, Hip Deep Angola. And I'll be talking today to our special guest scholar, Piero Gleyesis, author of Conflicting Missions and the forthcoming Visions of Freedom. I'll be talking to Cuban trovador Tony Pinelli, who served in a Brigada Artistica in Angola in 1975 and 76, and to Angolan composer Victor Gama. And we'll hear excerpts from rare radio broadcasts furnished to us by our special Hip Deep Angola advisor, historian Marissa Mormon. So don't go away. We always kick it off with music. What you got, Ned? Here's a golden oldie from back in the day from Grupo Manguare called Junto a mi fusil mi son. Beside my rifle, my son with guest vocalist Omara Portuondo on Afropop Worldwide. Mariposa flor sin par Mujer que sencilla y sol Va sembrando comprensión para exigir tu lugar es duro tu batallar pues la mente no es maleable pero cuando el viento arde amenazando tu tribu milicia no es el abrigo de amor con que cures todo milicia no son tus ojos tu espejo, tu tocador eres mariposa flor Disparando al enemigo Eres mariposa flor Compañera Disparando al enemigo Y así dice mi sol Así no me corra mi sol Palomas sobre la frente Las manos del escolar Saludan el despertar de una estrella que se mece, risa ingenua que enardece, la rabia del poderoso, dedo nuclear impetuoso, amenazando la historia. Y cantar mi vejigo 
cantar y así dice mi sol. No se rinde nadie en esta tierra. No así suavecito mi sol. No se rinde nadie en esta tierra. que esconda sus peces el trigo es pan en la aurora, no hay hambre que no se pliegue, si hay fragua trabajadora odio irracional y cruel odio de las tempestades para comer libertades me tienes que fenecer pero muerte puede ser miliciana, sí señor miliciana, no te asombres enfurece y pretende sin razón tragarse el pan y el amor que con el sudor se cuece miliciano es el machete la caña y el colibrí el guajiro macho que rompí defiende su tiempo vivo y a lo bien que no sepa el enemigo el miedo no come aquí no señor compa y que lo sepa el enemigo el miedo no come aquí dice mi sol así van los pioneros cantando mi son con la federa voy bailando mi son la tropa es especial van defendiendo mi son con la juventud yo seguro mi son así con las milicias territoriales y trinchera mi son on Hip Deep Angola, part four, the Cuban intervention in Angola. I'm Georges Collinet. And I'm Ned Sublet. On Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Ned, let's introduce our disclaimer right now, okay? Definitely. In this show, we will hear the voices of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. 
For some listeners, these are heroic figures. And for others, they are the devil incarnated. We take neither position, but even Fidel Castro's worst enemies will concede that he was a major historical figure of the 20th century. And for better or worse, Cuba's participation in the Angolan conflict is a major part of his legacy. It played a key role in the end of apartheid. And if you don't believe us, well, ask Nelson Mandela. As well as the independence of Namibia. And we do take the position that those were good things. It was a true crossroads of history, one that imposed much suffering on the Angolan people, as well as much sacrifice on the part of Cubans who served and of their families. It was multiple wars at once. One, at first it was an independence struggle. Two, after independence, it transitioned into a post-colonial Angolan civil war that had overtones of ethnic and class conflict. Three, a war between the Cuban and South African governments over the system of institutional racism called apartheid. Four, a superpower face-off between the Soviet Union and the United States. And five, a resource war for control of the vast petroleum reserves offshore from Cabinda. The arc of our show today is a big one. Cuba's first major military intervention in Angola was in 1975. But really our story begins in 1957, with the independence of Ghana, the first African country to decolonize, followed by the Cuban Revolution at the beginning of 1959. Which was seen by the Cuban revolutionaries as decolonization as well. Because they considered that Cuba was a neo-colony of the United States. It was an honor for me to speak with our special guest scholar today, Piero Gleyesis, professor of the School of Advanced Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Gleyesis, who was born in Venice, Italy, has done an exhaustive history based on primary document research as well as interviews in various countries, including he had access to a great deal of previously classified material in Cuba, where he got them to invent a declassification process. Unfortunately, the Angolan archives are still closed. I asked Dr. Gleyesis to set the stage by describing the world politically at the beginning of 1959. You had the Cold War, meaning the clash between the United States and the Soviet Union, was very much a bipolar world, and you had decolonization. So when you have the Cuban Revolution is when you have the wave of decolonization in Africa. In the 1960s, nations all over Africa became independent. Well, and not only in Africa, as for example the case of Jamaica, which became independent in 1962. And this all took place in the context of a world in which everyone was supposedly aligned with either the United States or the Soviet Union. The honeymoon between Havana and Washington following the fall of Batista lasted only a few months. Fidel Castro and Vice President Richard Nixon actually had a face-to-face -face meeting in Washington. And then the Eisenhower administration began formulating a plan to overthrow Castro, which President Kennedy inherited and which ultimately became the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of April 1961. Following that, Cuba installed Soviet missiles, which triggered the missile crisis of 1962 followed by sabotage and assassination attempts by the United States in Cuba. Since then, the United States' policy toward Cuba has overall been spectacularly hostile. There was to be no modus vivendi. That is, Washington would not accept the idea of peaceful coexistence 
with the communist Havana, right? But neither could Washington overthrow and occupy Cuba militarily, and Cuba's defiance of Washington was an unforgivable sin. Piero Gallesis. If the United States refused any kind of modus vivendi with Cuba, Cuba would have to respond in some other way. And the other way was to try to weaken U.S. influence throughout the world, to create friends for Cuba. It's also a little bit that famous phrase of Che Guevara, two, three, many Vietnams, to decrease the pressure on Cuba. If you had a second Cuba in Latin America, a third Cuba in Latin America, this would distract the pressure of the United States that was just focused on Cuba. If you helped the liberation of African countries, you would have friendly governments to Cuba in Africa. And it's very interesting to look at the analysis of the CIA. CIA analysts, when they were studying in the 1960s, what are the motivations of this Cuban activism? They stressed the real political argument. But they also stressed the commitment of the Cuban revolution to help other people. The CIA itself stressed that, that Fidel saw himself as someone who was involved in a crusade. The Cuba had a duty to help people to free themselves. The Cuban idea was the struggle for liberation has to be waged by the people of a country. You cannot wage it for them, but you have to help them. And in that sense, Africa was the same as Latin America. And there was also a very practical consideration that in Africa the dangers were fewer. In Latin America, you were challenging the United States directly in the U.S. backyard. And the danger of a U.S. response was much stronger. In Africa, the quote-unquote provocation to the United States was much less. Now, in 1964, and actually it was to a degree a mistake, the Cubans came to the conclusion that Central Africa was on the verge of exploding. Directly north of Angola, the former Belgian Congo became independent on June 30, 1960. And to its north, the former French colony of Congo Brazzaville became independent six weeks later. Portugal, however, held on to its colonies of Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, and Sao Tome. Patrice Lumumba, the first elected prime minister of the former Belgian Congo and a leftist, was deposed quickly and murdered on February 11, 1961 by his political opponents, with both the United States and Belgium complicit in his murder. While that country was in chaos, three major uprisings in Angola began that country's war for independence in the spring of 1961. Many of the Angolan independentistas fled, not a few of them to Brazzaville, where they continued the struggle from exile. Now, Cuban music was already well known and being copied by musicians in many African countries. I remember those days. Cuban music had by that time been part of Central Africa's musical DNA for almost 30 years through the famous GVs. In his book, Roomba on the River, Gary Stewart explains that the HMV and Victor companies jointly released a series of Cuban sites with the prefix GV. Beginning in 1933. Wow. And this was when El Manicero was new, right? It had just been a hit two years previously. The very first title was the famous El Manicero by Don Aspiasso's Havana Casino Orchestra with Antonio Machin, 
followed by many more releases by such artists as Septeto Habanero and Miguel Matamoros. This kicked off a Cuban music boom in a bunch of African countries that lasted for decades. But the largest number of Africans who had come to Cuba on slave ships were, after all, from Congo. And out of all of Africa, it was Congo musicians who took particularly well to Cuban music, transposing it to electric guitar, which ultimately morphed into sukus and ndombolo. Not only that, before Che Guevara ever went to Congo, this Cubanized Congo music already had the subtext of being a liberation music. Here's what Dr. Marissa Mormon told me. Angolans who listened to radio in this period listened to a lot of music from the Congo because they tuned into the radio stations from there. And not just from today's Democratic Republic of the Congo, but from Congo Brazzaville as well because of de Gaulle moving his government to Brazzaville during the Second World War, the strongest transmitter on the continent was placed in Brazzaville, and so it was really easy to tune into those stations. And when they listened, even if they didn't understand the lyrics, because many of them didn't speak Lingala, Anglons would tell me, you know, we understood the Congo was a place that was free and independent before we were. So when we heard Franco, we heard Tabule Rochereau, or we heard, you know, the later kind of classic rumba tunes, we associated that with freedom. Viva o Presidente Agostinho Neto! Viva! Viva o Presidente Jonas Savimbi! Viva! Viva o Presidente Olden Roberto! Viva! Vai agora Angolano! Each one had a different base. Holden Roberto's group was the FNLA, whose strength was in the Bacongo North. Agostinho Neto headed the MPLA, who were strong in the capital city of Luanda. And farther south, Jonas Savimbi's UNITA formed in 1966. Of the three, the MPLA people were generally better educated and better trained, and had a strongly leftist political ideology, whereas the other two had no discernible political ideology. The MPLA, now greatly changed, rules Angola today. Their first significant contact with Cuba came in late 1964 or early 65, when Che Guevara went to Africa. Piero Gleeses. You have the famous trip by Che Guevara in late 64 until March 65. And Che came back convinced that Africa, Central Africa in particular, was on the verge of exploding. And so there was really an opportunity. Cuba is completely it has to be made clear, when Che Guevara went, he didn't go as Che Guevara. He went as a representative of the Cuban Revolution, a personal representative of Fidel Castro. Whatever commitment he made was on behalf of Cuba on behalf of Fidel Castro, never as an individual on his own. He went as a very senior Cuban official. And when he went back in April 1965 to lead a group of Cubans to fight in the former Belgian Congo, where there was a revolt, and the United States had created an army of white mercenaries to put down this revolt, he didn't go on his own. I say this because there is all this theory of a break between Fidel and Che Guevara, etc., etc. He went as a representative of the Cuban Revolution at the head of a group of Cubans. 
as part of the foreign policy of the Cuban Revolution. And it is there that you have the development in 64-65 of the first contacts with the MPLA. Prendo la Villa Morena Terra da Fraternidad O povo é quem mais ordena Dentro de ti a cidade Dentro de ti a cidade O povo é Fast forward now to April 25, 1974, a coup d'état by generals in Portugal against Marcelo Caetano, the so-called Carnation Revolution, takes pretty much everyone by surprise, and a new regime in Portugal wants to get rid of the colonies. The transition period, which took over a year, saw the transformation of the war for independence from Portugal into a civil war among Angolan factions. Bear in mind, up until this point, Angola was officially a province of Portugal and the entire south of Africa was white-run. South Africa, Rhodesia, later Zimbabwe, Namibia, which was occupied by South Africa, and Angola. At this time, with the Portuguese preparing to leave Angola and independence set for November 11, 1975, the three independence movements had become political parties. The MPLA, headed by Agostinho Neto, UNITA, headed by Jonas Savimbi, and in the north, the FNLA, headed by Holden Roberto, Piero Gleyeses. And you have a civil war, the MPLA against the other two movements. The other two movements are supported by the United States and South Africa. There is a parallel covert operation by the United States and South Africa. The MPLA is on the verge of winning this civil war. And in order to prevent the victory of the MPLA, the South African government, urged on, encouraged by the United States, decided to invade Angola with regular troops from Namibia, which was controlled by South Africa and which is immediately south of Angola. South Africa felt its apartheid system to be threatened by the liberation movement and launched what is still remembered in South Africa as the border war. The South African invasion of Angola began on October 15, 1975. There were already Cubans in Angola, but they had just arrived. They were not fighting. They'd been just installing training camps to train the Angolans. They started fighting with the South African invasion. And there were just a few hundred. It became clear very soon that if Cuba did not intervene, the South Africans would arrive to Luanda, would take Luanda, would crush the MPLA. The technological superiority of the South African army over the MPLA was overwhelming. And basically they cut, if I can use the cliche, like a knife through butter. And they were advancing very fast towards Rwanda, which was really the stronghold of the MPLA. And it is because of this situation 
that Fidel Castro decided on November 4, 1975 to send regular troops to Angola. And he did it without consulting the Soviet Union. And he didn't consult the Soviet Union for a simple reason, I think because the Soviets were opposed, and he knew it. The Soviets were very focused on the taunt with the United States. And so the Soviets didn't want their allies, the Cubans, to send troops to Angola, and they didn't respond in a favorable way when the Cubans did it. But in any case, that's why the Cubans intervened, to stop the South Africans. And my impression is essentially that if it had been just a question of the civil war, the Cubans would not have intervened. They intervened because it was against South Africa. It was the struggle against apartheid. Because it was clear if the South Africans had been able to crush the MPLA, they would have installed their clients in power in Luanda, UNITA, the FNLA, and that would have strengthened the grip of apartheid over the people of Southern Africa. And the victory of the MPLA had, of course, the opposite effect. And so that's why Cuba really intervened, to prevent one more victory of the apartheid regime. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Ned, Cuba didn't only send soldiers to Angola. When Angola became independent, about 90% of the white population left, taking with them not only capital but professional skills. Angola had almost no doctors. Cuba was familiar with this situation because they'd had a brain drain of their own after the revolution. Piero Gleyesis. No country in the world has had a program of technical assistance abroad as generous as Cuba. It's a kind of upper-level Peace Corps. The Cuban doctors, the Cuban teachers, medical missions, construction missions, etc., that went to help underdeveloped countries, basically at no cost for the host country. About 70,000 Cubans went to Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And this is an immense contribution. And about, I think it's 50,000 foreign students who went to study in Cuba, all expenses paid by the Cuban Revolution. Some of them went as children and left as doctors. And besides doctors, teachers, and construction missions, the Cubans sent musicians. Musicians and other performers. These were the Brigadas Artisticas. Over the years, I've interviewed a number of musicians who went to Angola. They entertained the troops, but they also played for the Angolan people. For this program, I spoke to an old friend of mine, Tony Pinelli, who lives and works in Havana. In 1975, he was in a quartet called Los Cañas that volunteered to go as a musical group. 
Era un cuarteto que estaba dentro del concepto Nueva Trova. Tony is saying that we were a Nueva Trova type quartet. Referring to the guitar playing singer-songwriter movement heavily associated with lyrics of revolutionary content. Estábamos imbuidos de, del espíritu revolucionario y de, de algo que inculcó el gobierno muy, muy inteligentemente en la gente, que fue un sentido de deuda. He's saying we were imbued with the revolutionary spirit and with something that the government very intelligently inculcated in the people, which was a sense of a debt to the sacrifice of the guerrillas and, above all, to the spirit of Che Guevara. Por lo tanto, nosotros también, como miles y miles de cubanos que tenían ese mismo espíritu de darlo todo para construir un mundo mejor, Tony is saying, for us and for thousands and thousands of Cubans who had that same spirit of giving everything to construct a better world, the revolution was in that moment in a very, very important period. Because we believed in those dreams, in the direction that the leaders indicated for us. They were asked, why do you want to go to Angola? ¿Por qué quieren ir a Angola? Bueno, porque nosotros cantamos a la revolución y es hora de que nosotros que corroboremos con, con nuestras acciones lo que cantamos. He said, well, because we sing of the revolution and it's time that we follow through with what we sing about. Nos encontramos ahí que estaba Silvio Rodríguez, estaba Vicente Feliu, estaba el grupo Manguare. Tony's saying, one day they called us and we met up with Silvio Rodríguez, Vicente Feliu was there, grupo Manguare, and the Mago Guaira, a magician from Santiago de Cuba. A magician? Yes, and he was a party militant. They covered a lot of miles out in Angola's empty backcountry out where the fighting was. Wherever they went, they played for the commanding officers as well as for the recruits and the locals, so they were always well informed about what was going on. When they played for the Africans, it wasn't for the sophisticates of Luanda or Benguela. It was for remote populations. Realmente, para nosotros fue una cosa muy impactante ver a, lo, a los africanos porque empezamos a cantarle no solo a los soldados cubanos sino a todo el mundo He's saying really for us it was something very impactful to see the Africans because when we began to sing not only us but everybody sang the inhabitants of the Senzalas or the Kimbos depending on the region they had never seen organized music they were incredibly musical they sang in two and three parts at times, they entered into paroxysms that seemed hysterical, as if they were possessed by a santo, and they wept tears from what they were hearing. They began learning and performing music from Africans. More than 35 years later, Tony can remember it. One morning, I hear a chorus of man. It was cold and foggy. In three-part harmony, it sounded like a chorus in Buckingham Palace. He's saying we learned that chant from the south in the Umbundu language. And the Umbundu, mixed with Portuguese that they speak, is very strange. He says, we also worked up one, very sad, about a mother whose son was taken away. He says they took her son away to sell him as a slave, 
and they sent him to Sao Tome, and she claimed him, but there were no documents, nothing. She lost him. She had to let her son go, close quote. In other words, they learned a song in backcountry Angola lamenting the loss of a son to the slave trade. Ned Sablet and Georges Collinet on Afropop Worldwide, Hip Deep Angola, Part 4. The Cuban Intervention in Angola. If you want to read Ned Sablet's complete interviews with Piero Gleyeses and Victor Gama, go to our website, www.afropop.org. Cuba then remained in Angola, effectively stuck there. Piero Gleyeses explains. There was an agreement worked out that the Cubans would withdraw their army within three years. But then what happens is that South African threat against Angola increased. Savimbi continued to fight. You have South African military intelligence, which was sent to speak to Savimbi already in 1976, after the South African troops had withdrawn, telling Savimbi, keep fighting and we will help you. And South African policy became to try to bring Savimbi to power in Luanda. South African military help kept increasing through borders that were virtually open. The border of Angola with Namibia is about 1,400 kilometers long. It's impossible to control. And South African help kept increasing. And the South Africans attacked directly Angolan troops, Angolan positions, etc., etc. And even the CIA, for instance, in a report in 1979, U.S. documents that has been declassified, conceded that the Cuban presence was necessary to defend the independence of Angola. And so that's why the Cubans had to remain in Angola. Holden Roberto's FNLA became much less of a factor, and Savimbi became the principal antagonist. I asked Dr. Gleyesis, who was Jonas Savimbi? Jonas Savimbi was a charismatic man, a very good speaker. I've read some of the speeches he gave, because in 1975, until the Civil War really exploded, they were published in the Angolan press, and he was a much better speaker than NATO, for instance. He was a very intelligent man. And uh, he was a man with only one consuming passion in life, and that was absolute power. And in order to achieve absolute power, he was ready to inflict any pain, any suffering on the people of Angola, which he did. And uh, look, the MPLA was not a democratic government by Western standards, not at all. But compared to Savimbi, they were really a beacon of democracy. Savimbi's rule in the areas he controlled was totalitarian to the hilt. If you read the memoirs of the British ambassador in Rwanda, the ambassador of Margaret Thatcher, who was a very intelligent man, Golding, who followed Angola very closely, he calls Savimbi a monster who inflicted immense pain to his people. What impressed me is when I interviewed U.S. officials of the Reagan administration. 
and most of them had no problem in conceding what they called the dark side of Savimbi, that Savimbi was ruthless. So that was Savimbi, essentially. He burned the people at the stake, not only what he considered the guilty one, but the families with children, wives, by now is publicly acknowledged. So he was a monster, but he was a charismatic monster, a very intelligent monster. Fidel Castro came to Angola in March 1977. Our special advisor, Dr. Marissa Mormon, has been working on a history of radio in Angola during the Cold War. And thanks to her, I heard an incredible speech that Fidel Castro gave in Luanda. Of course, it's almost two hours long. Hey, Ned, uh, the program is only one hour. You can't play the Fidel speech. I'm just going to play a snippet. For the moment, forget that this man is a powerful political leader who could direct a victorious war halfway around the world and just listen to it as oratory. Fidel Castro was one of the most famous orators of the century, known for his extraordinary stamina in improvising speeches. And this one finds him perhaps at his performative peak. He's so sure of his voice as an instrument by now. Listen to the control he has over his pitch, his pacing, and, of course, the passion evident in his voice as he speaks in this place that he's bet the farm on, and the very real commitment to what he's saying. Also, the slapback echo. What does he say in this? He's describing how Angola was saved from being taken over by South Africa and Zaire. La situación era muy difícil. Los racistas surafricanos avanzaban por el sur. Los mercenarios y las tropas de Zaire se encontraban a 25 kilómetros de Luanda y las tropas mercenarias apoyadas por el ejército regular de Zaire se preparaban para atacar Cabinda. Hacía mucho tiempo el imperialismo organizaba estos planes. Ellos pensaban estar en Luanda el 11 de noviembre. Ellos pensaban ocupar Cabinda para esa misma fecha y en colaboración con los fascistas de Sudáfrica ocupar todo el territorio de Angola pero cometieron Un error. Meanwhile, SWAPO, the Namibian Liberation Movement fighting to end South African occupation, used Angola's southern territory as a base. Namibia was a key territory in this conflict. 
The war of the MPLA, SWAPO, and the Cubans, with material help from the Soviet Union, all on the one side, against UNITA and the South African Defense Forces, with material help from the U.S. on the other, dragged on for years. One of the most confusing aspects of this story is that during this time, the United States was buying Angolan oil, extracted by Gulf Oil and later Chevron, from the offshore deposits off Cabinda. A New York Times story in 1987 noted that a Cuban unit was dug in two miles from the Chevron complex at Cabinda and that that Cuban unit was there in order to protect the Chevron complex from attacks by Savimbi's American-backed commandos. In this case, American economic and political interests were dissonant. Piero Gleyesis. For Chevron, Gulf Oil, who were serious companies, the best partner was the MPLA rather than FNLA and UNITA because the MPLA was more efficient and more honest than FNLA and UNITA, who were a disaster. And, uh, you know, you have testimonies by representatives of Chevron to Congress or of first Gulf Oil saying our working relationship with the Angolan is excellent. U.S. business would have liked the United States to establish diplomatic relations with Angola. It's really an interesting case that goes against the stereotype because business was the least aggressive in this story. They absolutely were not interested in relations with Savimbi. They were not interested in U.S. creating problems in Angola. They had a good business relationship with the Angolan government. The climax of the war with South Africa came in 1988, with the largest land battle in Africa since World War II, the months-long siege of Quito Quanavale, which the writer Peter Pollock has referred to as the Black Stalingrad when some 15,000 Cuban troops together with MPLA fighters stopped the advance of South African and UNITA forces. Piero Gleyesis explains what followed. What do you have, to use an expression of Fidel, is like the boxer. With the left hand, it stops the blow, and with the right, it strikes. The left hand is the Cuban defense of Guido Guanavale. The right hand is the following. In March 1988, when the South Africans were launching their last attack against Guido Guanavale, which was a total failure, the Cuban troops began their advance in southwestern Angola from the defensive line that they occupied, which was about 300 kilometers north of the border. What really forced South Africa to come to the negotiating table, to give up its dream of installing Savimbi to power, to agree to free elections in Namibia, is the Cuban advance in the southwest. It's not Quito Conavale. You don't win a war with a defensive battle. The assessment of the South Africans and the assessment of the Pentagon by June 1988 was that the Cubans had gained air superiority in southern Angola for the first time ever. I have, for instance, a South African document written by General Caldenais, who was the head of the South African Armed Forces, saying that uh, if we get in a full-fledged clash with the Cubans, we have to be aware that within a few days we will lose our Air Force. And so this is what you have. You have the conclusion of the South African Armed Forces, which is also the conclusion of the U.S. Defense Department that the Cubans have gained militarily the upper hand and that therefore they have to abandon their dreams 
and negotiate in a serious way. Yo perdí un amigo en la guerra de África y a otro que escapando se lo tragó el mar. Over the next three years, the Cubans withdrew. The last combat troops left finally in 1991. By then, some 400,000 Cubans had served in Angola. To explore what effect the Angolan experience had on individual Cuban soldiers and on Cuban society in general would be beyond the scope of this program. That trauma continued into the new trauma of the special period, when Cuba's economy imploded following the disappearance of the Soviet Union. The Cubans made an effort to sweep up the landmines they had laid before they left. Jonas Savimbi did no such thing, and he continued to fight. In 1992, he was persuaded to run in an election between the MPLA and UNITA. He got 40% of the vote and refused to accept the result. The UN said the election was fair. The US proposed a coalition government, which was ridiculous. He set up his capital in Wambo, which the MPLA bombed the living daylights out of. Peace came at last when Savimbi was killed in 2002. It felt to me 10 years later when I was there like a tense, paranoid peace. Since then, the country's been rebuilding. And now I'd like to bring out a truly original Angolan artist, composer, instrument designer, and musicologist, Victor Gama. Whom, by the way, we heard from in Hip Deep Angola Part 3, a visit to Mbanza, Congo. He's recently premiered compositions he wrote for the Kronos Quartet and for the Chicago Symphony. Back before the Angolan Civil War had even ended, he began working in the remote places touched by war, recording musicians who had very often arrived as refugees, a significant percentage of the population was displaced over the decades of war, and they often made their own instruments. He made a website and an album of this material called Tsikaya. That's T-S-I-K-A-Y-A. I asked him what was the effect on Angolan music of all those years of war. I think that one of the main effects was a deterioration of the musical heritage in the rural areas. It's a kind of a uh, silent zone. And that was mainly because of the movement of a large number of people. Millions of people have moved from place to place during those three decades of conflict. Once I uh, recorded an old man who had a chiumba, a small portable harp that you play on your lap and you've got about six strings. He was living in a small community of people who had fled their village and they came to Katumbela, very close to Benguela. So they were living there for like eight years. They had to walk a huge distance, hundreds of kilometers to get there running away from the war. And he told me, well, this harp, this chiumba, I brought it from my village. The circumstances were extreme because they had to pack and leave in less than an hour and run away because troops were coming in and they were burning everything. And so one of the few things that he brought was that chiumba. And in fact, it was the only one in a community of about 3,000 people. If you went to a certain area 
20 years ago and you go back now, you don't see the same instruments there. You don't see the same music. You don't see the same people. From the album Sikaya, recorded by Victor Gama in the interior of Angola after the end of the civil war. Much more to come, but first, funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and from PRX member stations across the country. Thank you for supporting your public radio station. Now here's something to consider. Our educated, globally curious audience of decision makers and community leaders could be an excellent match for the goods and services of your company. 70% of public radio listeners think positively of companies that underwrite their favorite programs. For local opportunities, contact your station. For national, send us an email to sponsor at afropop.org. Victor Gama went in search of music into Angola's remote southeast, where the worst of the fighting had been. He described the three elements that went into his composition, Three Rivers in the Sky. When I was there in 1997, Quito was basically the same as in the 80s, as when the Cubans left and when the South Africans left. And everything that had been the battlefield and what was left on the ground was still there. The tanks, the trucks, the helicopters, even fighter jets were pieces of it, broken and being taken by nature already. You know, this was about 10 years later. And so that history of the war was still very fresh in people's minds. And I recorded a number of musicians then. One of them was uh, Mestre Dembo. He was a peasant. There are no instruments, just singing. And it's basically a story that he's telling. In that piece, Three Rivers in the Sky, he is talking about the Battle of Quito Conaval and he's asking for help, saying we're totally isolated. I think that was a kind of an improvisation as a message in the bottle type of thing, you know. Here is a message go and, and release it and hopefully somebody will do something. And later I went to Johannesburg and I was particularly interested in hearing what people knew about the war, you know, because the war with Angola was largely kept silent. People didn't know what was going on. 
One of these people I interviewed was an actress uh, that had happened to be in Vinduk, the capital of Namibia, with a theater company. And they traveled up to Rundu, which is in the border with Angola. And the army was there. One night, they were told that something was going to happen on the other side. People from the SADF and people from uh, Rundu put their chairs on the side of the river to watch the action that was going on on the other side of the river. And so it's a description of what was happening that almost nobody knew in South Africa, particularly the white South Africans that thought their army was uh, going to defend the country against the communists and all of that stuff. Then the last little song that you can hear on Three Rivers in the Sky is a guy that I found by chance in a uh, psychiatric hospital near Johannesburg. I went there to record a choir of workers. And as I was setting up, this guy comes running and he asked to record a song. He had been a soldier in Angola and he was basically living there at the hospital for many years, like 10 years or more. But it was totally by chance. He didn't know who I was, what I was doing. He just simply wanted to record that. So in a way, that piece is like a little puzzle that configured itself, like making a trace or a trajectory from Angola, from the very spot that was the most intensive spot of conflict between South Africa and Angola and then into South Africa and into Namibia.
worked in the Navia in Vintuk. I worked as an actor for the um, theatre company. And we used to go up to Rundu and Oshikati. And once in Rundu, from the SADF and the people living in Rundu put their trays on the side of the river and they were watching the war. And it, I had no idea, I, you, you, you couldn't have an idea of what is happening. And the next morning we went for breakfast at a, a, a rest house, a hotel. Uh, we saw that walk that night from the village that was attacked the night before that we watched. convoy and waited at certain gates for a long long time and I saw so many black corpses and it was as though the, the white soldiers wanted to show us their trophies and um, it's, I don't know it's it's the red blood on the black skin that really made an impression on me and the bravado of the white soldiers Three Rivers in the Sky from his album Naloga. Extra, extra special thanks to Njinga Paiva, Aaron Goldberg, David Gorin, to Kavlo Wadigesla, to Kevin Moore, to Constant Sublet, and to all the scholars and my Afropop teammates. And visit afropop.org for transcripts of Ned's interviews, to read more about Victor Gama's projects, and to hear all four episodes of Hip Deep Angola. You can also find us on Facebook and SoundCloud. And you can follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Ned Sublet. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan, Michael Simon Johnson, and Oriko Okabe. Manning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Ben Richmond, and I'm Georges Collinet.